when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have a very special guest, one of the longest-serving volunteers here at the Old Pen, Mr. Don Mummer. So welcome, Don. Thank you. Glad to be here. Don, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about where you are from, where you were raised? Sure. I was uh, born in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and I jokingly tell people that the first 35 years of my life, I was born in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And then when I was living up at Fruitland, my folks came up and my mom gave me this little penny postcard that said there was a certificate of my birth on file to Walworth County Courthouse, and it showed on their place of birth, Lake Geneva. I said, Mom, this is I was born in Lake Geneva. Uh, you've always told me Elkhorn. All my records everywhere say Elkhorn. And she said, well, we lived in Elkhorn, but they didn't have a hospital, so you were born in Lake Geneva. Uh. So uh, I didn't do anything to change any of my records. So anyway, we lived there for a few years. Then we moved to Iowa, where my dad's roots were, and we lived there till the early 40s. And then we moved to Portland. My dad was a refrigeration repairman, and he got a job at the Swan Island Shipyards installing the refrigeration equipment in, in the ships. And we got to go down and watch him launch a ship one time, and that was really neat. And then in 1945, we moved to Boise, and my dad went to work for commercial appliance. Now, it's not the same commercial appliance that is there today, the one that's just mostly furniture and stuff like that. This was actually refrigeration repair, things like that, because back in those days, you could <laughs> fix refrigerators. <laughs> mm-hmm. You didn't throw them away when they go bad like you do <laughs> nowadays. And so apparently they must have had a contract with the old pen. And my dad would come out here, and he would work on their refrigeration equipment when it needed. And then he was kind of clever. He would come around lunchtime, and they'd always invite him to eat. So he nice. could, could eat with them. Wow. So my folks were buddies with Dave and Gladys Fate. Dave Fate was a guard out here. And the way I understand it, he was on the tower for a while. And then because of his farming background, they moved him out to the Eagle Island dairy farm. And he was the supervisor of that. And he lived out there. The whole family did. And um, there were many Thanksgivings. We'd go out there and have Thanksgiving dinner because the old pen always gave the guards turkey and his wife wasn't a very good cook, and my mom was a good cook. So the two families, we went to the same church, 
and the two families would get together and have Thanksgiving dinner out there. My best buddy is uh, Bob Luscombe. He's been my best buddy since the fifth grade when we moved here in 1945. So through us, he was dating their daughter, Mary. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of eerie to be driving in at a penitentiary-type place. They didn't have any fences out there or gates. Out at Eagle Island. But the the prisoners lived out there, and they were all trustees. But it was kind of eerie going in there about midnight to bring her home. (laughs) And uh, she said that when she was a little girl that they had a scaffold out there, and uh, she would run up and down and play on the steps, not realizing it was an instrument of death, Mm -hmm. you know. And... (laughs) When I had a like a 1941 Mercury convertible and the top went bad on it, so I went out there and in their garage I put a new one on, bought a kit, put a new one on. Uh-huh. So we had many experiences with the fates, and then uh, eventually he moved back here and I was on the tower for a couple years before he retired. There was a rumor that the prisoners being on the island when the water was low, there was a, a bar next to the highway mm-hmm. on the end of the island yeah. that some of them would wade at night across when everybody was asleep and go over there and, and have some beers and come back. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, because yeah. as you know, there's many rumors that go on about what happened Absolutely. and didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, my brother... My older brother told me that he heard that Eleanor Roosevelt visited out here in the 40s, mm-hmm. and she made them shut down the hole in oh. the new cell house. Yeah. Well, that's not true. Right. Yeah. We know that's not true. Yeah. He also said he heard that when they went from the old penitentiary to the new penitentiary, they uh, made them march out there. Well, we know better than that. There's no way you could control 433 prisoners because I think that's what was in here at the time. So it's just amazing how these different rumors get started. When they uh, opened up the house we toured the other day, the warden's house, Uh they had um, the commission for the arts Uh in there and they had an open house and I went there and Lou Clapp's daughter was there. And I, I don't remember her first name. You, you may know what it is. But she told me that uh, she said she took me to the back porch and she showed me the big stone fireplace out there on the yard. And she said, you see that? And I said, you mean that fireplace? And she said, that's not a fireplace. That's a spaceship. I took <laughs> many trips to the moon in that, to the, in that spaceship. <laughs> then she pointed out a big tree that used to be there and big branch and she had tied a rope to that and she'd do her Tarzan bit and swing across that little (laughs) irrigation ditch that was there. And then she told me that every morning during the school year, a truck would leave the old pen and go out to the dairy farm and the prisoner would drop her off at the school. Now, I don't know which one it is. I'm guessing it's probably Roosevelt because mm-hmm. I think that's the oldest one in that area. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back at night, he'd pick her up and bring her back to the pen. Mm-hmm. And one night or one afternoon, one of her little girlfriends, I don't know how old she was. I was I'm thinking she maybe was about fourth grade, something like that, mm-hmm. asked her if she'd like to come to her house and play after school. And she said, Sure. 
And so they went over there, and they'd been there a while. I'm not sure whether it was an hour or what. And finally, the mother, the girlfriend said, does your mother know you're here? Did you call her? And she said, no. So they called the penitentiary and let her know she was there. Well, meanwhile, when the guy got back, said she wasn't at school. She wasn't there. They had notified the city police, the county sheriff's office, the state police. The sheriff's mounted posse was getting ready to saddle up and go out and hunt. (laughs) And so she said when she finally got home, she said, after what I was told to me by my mother and so on, she's, I never did that again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Getting back to uh, Dave Fate, he made arrangements that over in the number two yard, they used to have the industry over there, and, and um, among the things they had was also an automobile repair and paint shop. And so my, my buddy Bob Luscombe needed to get his car painted. Dave made arrangements, and he brought his car out here and got it painted. When I was working for Zellerback Paper Company, uh, we used to sell them Wyandotte products out here, and there would be great great big round keg of soap and I had to deliver it one day and they had a sally port type thing over there but it was all fenced in and they'd open the gate and you'd go in and they'd have mirrors and they could look under it or they even had a a pit they could get down under and look and then uh, I backed up to the unloading dock and the big barrel of laundry soap must have weighed at least 150 pounds and I couldn't even budge that thing. And this big old prisoner said, get out of the way. <laughs> he grabbed it, and he just took that thing to the end and lifted it up and put it on a loading dock. And I said, wow. <laughs> and then uh, when I left, then we did the reverse thing, of course. They had to check underneath to make sure there wasn't anybody out there. In the, in the late 40s, they used to have tours out here on Sundays, even while the prisoners were in here. And so Dad brought us out here. And the only thing I can remember about it is we were in the two house. We were on the east side. And I was clear down at the end. And the guard said, go ahead and step in the cell and see what it's like. And I stepped in. And he pulled the lever and closed the door on me. And wow. just scared the devil out of me. Yeah, that would stick with you for a while. <laughs> yeah. And that's the only thing I can remember Jeez. about that. Was there anything in the cell? Like, was it somebody's cell at that point? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah wow. because it was a working penitentiary <laughs> right. at the time. They hadn't closed down, and yeah. all of their stuff was in there and everything. Oh <laughs> what was it like? Did it feel cramped when you were in here, when you were visiting, when there were prisoners? Or? Um, not really. No. I, I, I just don't remember the, that much about it. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing as a little kid I can remember yeah, is yeah. them pulling the door shut on me and mm scaring me half to death yeah, that would be a thing to remember yeah, yeah. that's before like five house and yeah. four house you know so Ooh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and then um we moved up to or i did uh, in in fact uh, i met my wife jody through the fates also because jody's uh, older brother had married their older daughter and then eventually bob married Mary, their other daughter. And so we have the same nieces and nephews, but we're not related to each other. And a lot of people <laughs> have a hard time understanding that. <laughs> yeah, when we double dated, it was my Jody and my buddy Bob and Mary. So the four of us would double date. And we, we still get together. 
after all these years. You see, we've been married 64 years now, and they've been wow. married 63, I think. Wow. We get, and we've been getting together once a week until this pandemic hit <laughs> and play games and old memories and things like that. Right. So um, I introduced him to his wife, and they introduced me to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met her was out at the uh, penitentiary dairy farm for Thanksgiving. <laughs> she was there because her, her brother Bill was there. Oh, yeah. And we weren't impressed with each other <laughs> <laughs> at all. It was later on that we got together and eventually got married. I mean, who would have thought prison and, and the, the dairy farm would be a place to find yeah. love? Oh, my <laughs> yeah. gosh. 64 years. Wow. Uh, in 1967, uh, I was working for Zellerback Paper Company as an outside salesman, and they wanted people to live in the area where they, uh, their territory was because I had Nissa and Vail in Ontario and Weezer and Emmett. And so we moved to Fruitland. And Fred Norman was professor of arts over there, and he was putting together the odd couple for um, a community thing. He was going to do it with all community people, kind of an outreach to them. But um, a lot of people don't understand that you don't come in and read a play and then have a couple of rehearsals and put it on. And, and the, you know, you're talking usually a minimum of 21 rehearsals to put on a play. And so all the town people that were interested all dropped out. And meanwhile, I had contacted him and said, I'd be interested in being in it. And of course, I understood it because I've been a member of the Boise Little Theater since 1953. So when they all dropped out, he called me and asked me if I'd play Felix. And I said, sure. So it was me and all the rest of the cast were faculty members from Treasure Valley Community College. And we took that play all over. We took it to Halfway Oregon because one of the teachers in there had been a principal there. We took it to Adrian, and they used it as a fundraiser because their band was going to go to Washington, D.C. We took it many places, and we took it here to the old penitentiary. (laughs) We had a portable set that we could set up, but the stage in the chapel here was way too small for that. Mm. And so we had to kind of revised it and and there was two rooms on each side well one of them worked fine for the entrances from the outside and the other one worked fine for the bedroom which there were never any scenes in the bedroom anyway and it was very interesting Um, this was in uh, 1968 that we did this and uh, in the opening scene they're having the poker game and Felix comes in all despondent his wife has left him and everything And he runs to the window and throws it open. He's going to commit suicide. And when I went there and threw open the window, one of the prisoners yelled, go ahead and jump. (laughs) (laughs) And they, uh, you could tell that they uh, uh, loved Speed the Gambler, but they hated Murray the Cop. (laughs) And then, uh, and they loved Oscar, but they didn't care for Felix at all. (laughs) Now, I never played it. Oscar or uh, Felix is effeminate because it just ruins the whole show if you do that. It's expected of you to be a neatnik. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. 
And um, they did not like Felix until the very ending scene when it looks like he's going to go upstairs and live with the Pigeon Sisters in their apartment. And then Felix was a great guy. (laughs) (laughs) This pretty much brings us to um, my volunteering. And the reason I got started out here volunteering was I had taken the tour of Alcatraz three different times. And uh, one day there, Julie was the administrator here at the time. She had put an ad in the paper wanting volunteers. So I thought, well, this ought to be fun. So I came out here and talked with her and started doing the volunteering as a tour guide. I really loved being the tour guide. I took the information that she gave me. And then um, over the first several years, when I had time, I'd go upstairs and get files out and I'd read the files and find out about different prisoners and so on. And um, after I had gone out a couple times and what I did the first time or two is I had took three by five index cards Mm -hmm. and put notes on there for each station I would stop at. And so I asked Julie, I said, would you follow me on this next tour? And I said, that way I can find out. You can critique me and let me know what I need to do. And about a third of the way through the tour, she left. And so when I came back, I said, okay, anything you want to tell me about it? She said, well, you were doing it better than I do it, so I thought I'd leave you alone. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then I, we did a lot of fourth graders, as you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, fourth graders, they don't understand at that age, because they're mostly 10, some 9, some 11, they do not understand what it's like to be in prison for 25 years, say, you know, they're 10 years old. And so they were mostly there because they were having fun because it was a day away from school. So what I finally started doing was I basically gave the tour to the adult chaperones and teachers, but I would explain things to the kids, like I would explain, I'd say, do you know what a warden is? And well, they didn't. So I'd tell them, well, the warden is the individual, the person that's in charge of the penitentiary. He's like the principal in your school. Mm -hmm. The principal is the head of your school. I said, now don't get the two mixed up. (laughs) And then when we'd get to the uh, hole, I'd say, how many kids here play solitaire? And they'd raise hands, you know. And I'd say, how many play the game at a time? And they'd say, well, one person. I said, okay, under these trap doors was solitary confinement. That means it was a cell where you put one person in there. They weren't in there with anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so I'd kind of explain that to them. And then we'd have a few weird things happen. One day I'm standing there at the dining hall talking and and I'd always tell them, please don't ask me any questions until I'm through at the spot I'm at, because most of the time I will answer it before you can ask it. Mm-hmm. And I said, and please know what if questions, because what if <laughs> questions would be something that's usually way out of the room mm-hmm. that would never happen. Right. You know? Like, well, what if somebody pushed another prisoner into the deadline? You know, mm-hmm. Things like that. Yeah. And so I was standing there giving my spiel and I asked for questions and Kid raised his hand, and I said, yes. And he said, why do you have one orange sock and one blue sock on? (laughs) (laughs) 
So I had to explain to him that there was a little tradition started by one of our running backs at Boise State. And so when I'd go to basketball games or so on, and we were going to have one that night, I'd wear one orange sock and yeah. one blue sock. Oh, my gosh. So, but I would also ask him, what are four things you lose when you come to prison? And course you'd get the well you'd lose your guns you'd lose your knives and you know it was amazing and after I'd let them go on for a while I said all right let's talk about this number one you lose your freedom you're no longer free like you are at home to where you can go down to the bowling alley you can go to the pizza parlor you can go to the movie you've lost all that freedom then you lose your identity you're no longer Mr. Jones or Tom or Joe, you've got a number. You're called by that number. Hey, 673, come here. I want to talk to you by a guard. And if you ever leave the penitentiary and come back, you're going to get that same number back. Then I'd tell them, you lose your choice. You don't get up in the morning and go to your closet and say, hmm, what am I going to wear mm -hmm. today? You wear what they tell you to wear. You don't go to the dining hall and sit down and bring a menu to you and you choose what you want. You eat what they're going to tell you you're going to eat. Yeah. You have no choice. And then most of all, you lose your privacy. Somebody is actually keeping an eye on you 24 hours a day, no matter where you are, whether you're at the workplace, in your cell, somebody's keeping track of you. You have no privacy there. And... When we get to going through the cell houses, you're going to look in and you're going to see a single toilet in a cell for two people or three people or four people. And if you need to go to the toilet, you go in front of God and everybody because it's not a separate room. Of course, then you'd hear a lot of <laughs> things like that. And that usually made a pretty big impact on them. I was giving a tour one day to adults. And a guy named Bobby, and I can't remember his last name now, we were in uh, Little Siberia. Mm -hmm. And he said, I spent 90 days in there. I said, really? And he said, yeah, he'd been in the penitentiary, I think he said about three um, years. I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was 67, 68. Part of the time is when Orwell Stiles was the okay. warden, and I think he was only warden for 11 months, if I recall. Yeah. He said uh, that he'd been in there for 90 days. And so I asked him for his name and number. I said, they may want to contact you and do an oral history. And uh, they did. They called him, and he did come in and do an oral history. So you, you might be able to figure out which one is. I, all I remember yeah. is Bobby. But when we were in the three house, and I very seldom ever took tours in the three house because to me it was between like two and four going to be. And time-wise, it would take that much longer. But for some reason or other, we went in there. A lot of times I'd go in there with a group if we had several groups going and somebody was in the two-house, and I'd go to the three-house. And we walked in there, and he looked, and I think it was cell two, and he says, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. And I said, what? What don't you believe? He said, I don't believe it. And I said, what? And he said, this was my cell, and they still got the pad on headboard uh, on the bed and behind the toilet that I made mm, and put wow. there. That's cool. So another time I was giving a tour to uh, adults, uh -huh. I would I would try to do 
summertime ones because I really enjoyed taking the adults around. And I had uh, one guy when we were in the four house said, I took my dental exam here to get my license in this four house. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, once a year, the new dentist that had to have their exam by the state, they would come in here uh, and we'd set up chairs and we'd bring our own tools and we'd do dental work on prisoners. And so I got to looking through the files one day and I actually found a picture of where they had a whole bunch of chairs and dentists yeah. working on people Absolutely. in the four house. That's my dentist. I had the same conversation after I started working here. And he's like, oh, my dad took his exams there. Yeah. And, you know, so I brought him a little packet of photos and things. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. We used to, there was a, I can't remember her name now, but it was when we first started that every year on a dentist's birthday, we this did this for two or three years why we'd have a birthday party we'd have a cake and we'd bring in potluck and we'd have a party and then one year we did a, a ghost watching thing uh where we came in after hours when the penitentiary was closed and we brought pizza in we had a tv set up and we had horror movies to watch <laughs> and we'd eat pizza and anybody wanted to spend the night and we did it in the five house because the rumor is the five house is haunted by good old Raymond Snowden because there's 14 steps going upstairs to the gallows room and gallows traditionally are supposed to have 13 steps and so we did that. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. That's pretty much it, unless you want me to tell you about my experiences at the new penitentiary. Of course, yeah. When they first were building it, the Zellerback Paper Company that I worked for was furnishing some of the supplies in the kitchen, and they needed somebody to come out, and our manager at the time would have that as his account, but he didn't want to come out alone, so he took me with him, but there weren't even any prisoners in here yet. I don't know what his problem was. (laughs) And then when I worked for Zellerback, I would call on the industrial industries out there and sell them masking tape and things like that. They put some boxing matches on out there that the public could come to, so we went out there and went to the boxing matches. And then the guy that was in charge of their, I don't know if you'd call it entertainment or what, was a guy that used to call on me when I worked at Meridian Drug Center, and he sold novelty stuff, and he contacted me because he knew I was at the Boise Little Theater, and he wanted to know if I had a play I could bring out. I said, sure. So the first one I took out there was 12 Angry Jurors. Mm-hmm. Now that's derived from the 
play 12 Angry Men. Uh, and you can do it three ways. You can do it as 12 Angry Men. Uh, you can do it as 12 Angry Women. And there are scripts for the men and for the women. Or you can do it as 12 Angry Jurors and have a mixture of men and women. And I chose to do it that way because you just don't see all male or all female juries anymore. Mm -hmm. You've got a mixture. And so what you do, the first time you have a reading, you sit down with the scripts and you change the his to her or the she to he or whatever, depending on how you've cast it. Uh And so we brought that out there. And... You know, switchblade knives play a very important role in that mm. play, two of them. And for obvious reasons, they were not going to let us bring any real switchblade <laughs> knives out there. And so what I did is I went to the novelty store and I bought the cheapest Halloween uh, rubber knife that you could bend <laughs> back and forth and everything. And so I was supposed to let them know. And so before the show started, I said, now this is a very important part of the play. Switchblade knives play a very important part. And I said, for obvious reasons, we couldn't bring switchblade knives in here. So what we've got, and we want you to play the old army game of simulate, this is a switchblade knife. And I was taking it by the point and bending it over and back. And I said, we refer to these as our pen knives. Went completely over their head. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so I said, well, enjoy the play. <laughs> well, the first vote that ever comes out in that show is 11 guilty, one not guilty. And it's an older man that uh, is the first one to say not guilty. And uh, I had a guy named Ed playing it, and he was probably in his... 70s at the time. He, he, in fact, he worked for immigration service. His job was to go around to all the different farms and places in the state and check people to make sure they were all legal. And that's even as far back as what this would have been in the 70s, I think, when this went on out there. And uh, he, he had a bad habit of shaking his hands when he was talking. It was very distracting. And so I got the idea, well, he's an old man. So I said, Ed, I'm going to give you a a cane because you don't really look old enough. He did. And I said, when you're sitting there at the table, I want you to rest your hands on the crook of the cane. And when, when you stand up, I want you to lean on it. And that solved the problem. Well, he was the first one to change. So then, uh, some big guy in the audience and the way it's set up out there is they have the gymnasium and we had to go out in the afternoon and set up the set and I went out with my stage manager and we set it up and we went in and ate the asses come in they had chicken on a king and they, <laughs> they piled that plate so full I mean it was plentiful but the way it's set up out there, they have the gymnasium, and then they have some bleachers, and then there's a landing behind that that's long enough that they have pool tables up there so guys can play pool. And every hour on the hour, the bell will ring, and they have 10 minutes to leave that area and go to another area, like maybe they want to go to a craft shop or mm-hmm. something like that. 
So I had to tell the cast, you know, when the bell rings, just freeze until everybody's done, and then we'll we'll go on. But after that first vote, this great big guy in the audience, he'd clap his hands and he'd say, you tell them, Pops, you tell them, <laughs> you know. And, of course, the vote goes back and forth and yeah. back and forth. And every time Ed would have something to say, that guy would go again, you tell them, Pops, you tell them. <laughs> Finally, at the end of the play, they acquit the guy. And so afterward, why the prisoners are mingling with us, and one guy came up and says, man, I sure wished I'd had that jury. Mine only took 10 minutes to convict me. <laughs> so then I, um, another play I took out there was a melodrama. So uh, I had made all the arrangements and everything, and, and we had a couple of really good-looking ladies and a dog my stage, or I mean my assistant director was a guy named Jay Garland, and he was there for several years, and he's acted in plays for me. I acted in plays for him when he directed. We acted together, and so he was scared. He didn't want to go out there, and Jay very reluctantly came and brought his dog, Daisy, cutest little thing, and after the play was over, these prisoners came down, and they completely ignored the women. They all wanted to pet that dog. <laughs> well, years later, we found out that Jay has some kind of sickness that had to go up to Seattle to the Veterans Hospital up there. And he gave him the name Jay Garland, and they said, we don't have any record of that. He says, oh. And he gave him another name, and it was in the computer. And it turned out that Jay was actually here under the Witness Protection Program. No, and I think that's why he was oh. afraid to go out there. He was afraid somebody, <laughs> and I think he was from, he, he told us he came from L.A., but he had a New Jersey-type accent. Ah. So I'm sure it was something back on the East Coast. But that was wow. the reason he oh, was scared. Yeah. Um, that's, that's we had like a, a like a TV show. I don't like, think I've ever heard of anyone actually ever being in the witness. Like I, yeah, I'm sure it exists, but yeah. I've never heard of anyone actually being in yeah. it. Yeah, that's like, crazy. And then being an actor, like yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> like such a funny. Yeah, the people were in charge here at the time. I don't know who it was. Made arrangements for us to go out and tour the new pen, and so we went out there and we got a a little thing from the assistant warden. Gave us a little beforehand speech, talk, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to him, because I knew that, that they had televisions, because, you know, in the Five House, we've got a television, one which we never had here. But the new pen used to bring new guards out here and teach them how to shake down a cell, and that's why that TV was in there. So I asked him, I said, isn't TVs in the cells kind of modelly caught in them? He said, let me tell you something. He said, that's the best babysitter we've got. As long as they're sitting there watching television, they're not sitting there plotting on things to give us problems. He said they hadn't been open a month when prisoners learned they could take a refill out of a ballpoint pen. And back then, they were the metal ones. They weren't the plastic ones. They're in there now. And bend them and stick them in the electrical socket and blow the whole side of the, of the cell block out. So anyway, that's my experience with the new pen. I don't know, is there anything that 
Well, so I have a question. So, you know, you've been volunteering out here for, you know, a very long time. And so what, like, what is your favorite thing to do? What have you found most fulfilling? Oh, the tour guide. Yeah. I actually, I'm performing. Mm. I'm I'm an actor at heart. Uh I'm director. I've been a member of the Little Theater since 53. I've directed over 30 plays down there. I've won several acting awards and staging awards and things like that. And so I loved doing that. And I loved going up and doing research so I could add to the stories I would tell at the different places. And then the old knees started going out on me. I've had both those replaced. So I really enjoy being out in the Earl because a lot of times I'll get asked questions about the pen that I know about because Mm -hmm. of being the tour guide Mm -hmm. and enjoy that. Oh, and when I would do the tours with the fourth graders, I would tell them, now, your tour is going to work different than when there were prisoners in here. When prisoners were in here and they were bad, we locked them up. If you guys are bad, I'm not going to lock you up. (laughs) They wanted to be locked Mm -hmm. up. I mean, they loved Mm -hmm. it in in the five house when I would close the doors and pull the bars, and then I'd— tell all the teachers and so on, well, let's go get some lunch. And we, oh, man, they scream and holler and all that kind of stuff. We still do that. Yeah, Uh, seriously. I I love that line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you're good, we'll lock you up. Yeah. What? (laughs) (laughs) And then, then of course, I always tell them that at the start when I'm telling them no what if questions and things like that. And then just about every cell block we go in, is this where we get locked up? Like, you'll yeah, know totally. when it's time. Yeah. You know? It happens all the time. Be patient. Yeah. We'll lock you up soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how how long do you plan to be out here? How much? Until my body won't let me anymore. Okay. <laughs> I really enjoy it. And I wish I could do the tours again, but I just yeah. I can't do it because Frankly, it took me an hour and a half because I told so many stories and everything. And yeah. they say, cut it down. Okay, well, I try and I couldn't. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. But, you know, yeah. I people would leave, especially in the adults, uh, but the kids wouldn't. And I actually had two different teachers that would always call up and ask for me. Mm-hmm. So and that, that always made me feel good. We appreciate you out mm-hmm. here so yeah. much, Don. And the, and the kids just love the Dennis the Cat story. Oh. Yeah. Go over and look at the little grave there and everything well we have this fun little tradition where uh you respond naturally whatever comes to mind if i were to say do your own time how would you respond to that probably like when i got drafted in the army didn't like to i didn't want to go but i had to and i said i'm gonna go in and do the best job i can and get out and not make any trouble there you go i love it perfect that's great (laughs) all right everybody do your own time do your own number we'll talk to you next week if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.